Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. This podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Friday, November 2nd, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The caravan is overhyped. The 14th Amendment won't be repealed. And the middle class tax cut is as much a work in progress as Trump U as an Ivy League institution. These lies have all been rebutted desperately, fully, exasperatedly. But what's the cost? What's the cost to the conversation? What haven't we been talking about? Well, I want to talk about one of those things. So Republicans would say, well, we haven't been talking about tax cuts and the economy. But, you know, the economy isn't usually that big an issue in midterms. Voters say this time around that the economy and jobs are their number one issue. I don't know. I kind of think they've been trained to say this. Invaders from the South. I'm not going to emphasize this. I'll talk about quarter to quarter growth and real GDP. Mm -hmm. So there is talk by Democrats about health care, but it usually boils down to one issue, that Republicans want to eliminate coverage for pre-existing conditions. No, wait, Republicans say. Forget the fact that I, Josh Howley, am part of a lawsuit that would eliminate coverage for pre-existing conditions. Concentrate on the fact that I have a five-year-old with a pre-existing condition, so I don't want to eliminate them. Follow my heart. Here's the truth, and follow me here. Republicans actually would like to protect coverage for those with pre-existing conditions. I mean, in a perfect world, well, a world so imperfect that five-year-old Elijah Howley has a degenerative bone disease in his hip, but perfect enough that we all protect pre-existing conditions, Republicans would like that. But it's not possible. And it's not possible because the math doesn't work out and the economics don't work out. In order to protect pre-existing conditions, that would cost a lot to insurers. And to make up for that cost, you have to force everyone into the insurance pools. And the Republicans have, with the last tax cut, passed legislation that basically allows anyone who wants to, to opt out of mandatory insurance. I mean, they at least have made the penalty for not having health insurance effectively zero dollars. So what happens? The pools get less healthy. They get less profitable. What do insurers do? They raise their rates. Also, The government used to reimburse insurers who took on poor and middle-class people on their silver plans. Those reimbursements are gone under the Republican tax bill. So what do insurers do? They raise their rates. Now, here's the effect. Kaiser, very authoritative organization, crunched the numbers, and they found that monthly premiums on the most popular plans would be 16% lower if it wasn't for the Republican tax bill. Again, monthly premiums would be 16% lower if it wasn't for the Republican tax bill. I guess it's maybe a hard argument to make in a debate or a campaign. I mean, there is a lot of noise out there and debating your premiums would have been lower. It's a hypothetical. It doesn't grab you in the gut like your premiums are exploding and here's the villain. But it's true. In the specific... Without the Republican tax cuts, 
the most popular plans would have gone down by 16%. Yeah, but on the other hand, caravan, there's a caravan. On the show today, I spiel about the great economic numbers. And I I guess they are pretty great. I'm not going to lie about that. Others might. But first, he is the cleverest of writers. He's Simon Rich. He doesn't just make jokes. He creates worlds. And then, are you ready? He populates those worlds with jokes. He is the author of Hit and Misses, and he is here to discuss historical horse fits of peak. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Let me tell you about the next Slate Live event that I'm involved in. Slate's best political minds will break down the midterm elections and possibly just break down, depending on the results of the midterm elections, in a live conversation in Brooklyn. It'll be me, Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, and Jim Newell at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. I can walk there. I know where that is. That will be the Thursday after Election Day, which is to say November 8th. That will be November 8th. Join us for the lively recap discussion. We'll take your questions, too. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that event. A self-abnegating and uh, self-grandizing, aggrandizing monk in the third century, a former rock star who has one last song in her, a surgeon desperate to make some April Fool's jokes, and Paul Revere's horse. These are all, of course, the worst series of clues in the last round of $100,000 Pyramid. No, they're not. They're characters in the new book by Simon Rich, Hits and Misses. I like this subtitle. The subtitle is Stories. Doesn't doesn't do too much. Tells it like it is. The cover of the book says he's a comic godsend. That's a Conan O'Brien quote. Hello, Simon. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Love the book, just like I love the last one. Now, I, I know it's a terrible question to say how you get your ideas. I don't want to exactly ask that, but I heard you or saw or read an interview with you where you talk about essentially you do some amount of crowdsourcing to figure out what ideas to pursue. Is, is that right? Oh, yeah. I've, I've always been a quantity over quality kind of writer. So uh, my philosophy is just to write as many stories as I can. And I... I just focus group them. I send them out to to anybody who's willing to read them, you know, friends and friends of friends. And of course, you know, the usual, you know, magazine editors and so on. And 
And then uh, people like them. I, I kind of keep them around, and otherwise I throw them in the garbage. Are they always <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if ten if ten people, including one of whom you're married to, is like, I don't think the story is very good, then you know, it, it should teach you something. Yeah, that's true. But what about just even uh, pursuing an idea, taking it from concept to fully fleshed out story? At what point will you uh, solicit the opinion of others in the process? Oh, only when I've totally finished the story, and I I think it's as as strong as it can be. I had a story in my last book, Spoiled Brats, called uh, Sellout, which is a a story where it's uh, told from the perspective of my great-grandfather, Herschel, who is this uh, Eastern European immigrant, and uh, in the story, he falls into a pickle vat and gets brined, and he comes out 100 years later, and he meets his great-great-grandson, me, Simon Rich, and he's, you know, horrified by every aspect of my life how narcissistic and lazy and, and, and uh, uh, spoiled rotten I am. And it, it took a few tries before I figured out, ah, I should just have Herschel tell the story. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and, and, and that kind of unlocked it for me. So a lot of times the idea will have some legs. I've just, uh, I'll realize um, that I've come at it from the wrong angle. And, and you figured that one out. That wasn't uh, via feedback from one of your readers. Yeah, sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's clear to me that the thing has failed and I won't subject anyone to it. Yeah. Now, there's a story here, maybe a couple, but one that really reminded me of the pickle brine story, and that's uh, the birthday party where uh, a guy who's very much like uh, the me character in the pickle brine story uh, sees past versions of himself and also future versions of himself. Yeah, definitely similar similar themes. Um, and that's that's a story, you know, about about aging. A birthday party is yeah. He, he basically. Uh, there are these haunted candles and uh, he's when he blows them out um, however candles he fails to blow out uh, he, he's visited by himself at that age so you know there's 14 candles that he, he couldn't blow out on his 30th birthday so his 14 year old self shows up and basically spoils his his fun by telling him that he's completely uh, uh, failed in all of his 14 year old ambitions um, and it's it's ultimately a story about getting older and uh, adjusting your expectations for yourself and, and, and uh, uh, letting yourself uh, off the hook. Right. But the, uh, the commonalities are something like the, the person who's either the center of it or we as the reader are most uh, supposed to identify with has a pretty cushy job that doesn't exactly add to society and some outside force, but an outside force connected with that person's life makes him look at his life and said, what, what the hell are you spending your time with? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love stories about characters who have that kind of reckoning, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and if I can do it in like a fun, surreal, visceral, high stakes way, I, I always try to, you know, I, I, I love stories where, you know, death shows up and says, you know, it's all over and you lost. I mean, those kinds yeah. of stories uh, growing up were the ones that I, that I really, really enjoy the ones where, you know, somebody is experiencing the most shocking day of their life. Yeah. Well, in this one, death shows up and he gets cast in a Scorsese movie. I shouldn't say cast. He gets put up. Maybe no, he'll get a call. he's not back. really going to get it. You know, he's kind of just being fooled with. Yeah, I, I, uh, I always like stories about the Grim Reaper and, and stories about people trying to shake death. So, yeah, yeah. I have a story in this one where an elderly uh, B-movie casting agent uh, is, you know, his time has come and the way he, he gets death to leave is by, uh, kind of implying that maybe he has, uh, a way to get him cast in a movie and death of course protests and oh. says, 
he know, doesn't want to be an actor. Uh, but of course, everyone secretly does. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And he's you know, able to kinda, I, was, yeah. I was in my high school play, and I'm not going to say, I mean, no one tried out. Well, there was one guy who tried out, and he was pretty good. And sure, my yearbook says, you know, see you on Broadway, but I went into the death <laughs> yeah. game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the sort of, the, the there's like a, this book hits and misses. It's all about uh, fame and and you know uh, arrogance and and uh, our, our our species tendency to to to, to pursue uh, uh, you know approval at all costs. And um, so yeah, there's 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 a lot of stories uh, where you kind of meet characters that secretly harbor these ambitions. Um, now Conan O'Brien's blurb is on the cover of your book. It, it really took Conan to point out for me that there's a lot of comedy with Hitler. Did Conan help you discover that? Did you figure that out beforehand? When did you really start to realize that there's so much comedy inherent in Hitler? Oh, I mean, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think Conan would even uh, claim that he was the first. Uh, yeah, obviously you brought up Mel Brooks. Um, uh, I still think uh, gay Hitler is one of the great SNL Weekend Update characters that, that was back in the, in the 90s. Yeah. Hi, Tina. Hi, Jimmy. Sprecken the dick. Gay Hitler! Get out of here! Get out of here, Gay Hitler! Uh, Conan sings Edelweiss in the very first late night uh, show that he never did um, <laughs> and has a pretty great cutaway to a crying Nazi. Um, so yeah, no, I'm definitely not the first, the, the first comedy writer, especially not the first Jewish comedy writer to uh, confront Hitler. Uh, but um yeah, I mean, it's it's really fun to start off with inflexible characters. Mm. Hitler is one, uh, mm-hmm. death is another. Um, it's really fun to start off with characters that uh, are really set in their ways, and 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 because then when you when you uh, give them any kind of vulnerability, uh, it's it's funny. <laughs> Hopefully, if you do it right. Um. So Hitler, funny. Uh, you realize it. You play on it robots funny show up a couple times i think society realizes robots are kind of funny is there anything yeah again again robots because it's like you know they're pretty stuck in their ways right they're (laughs) programmed so yeah they are stuck in there if we don't want think about robots it's almost like they have a one track uh mind just yeah right totally i love i mean robots and comedy i mean it's they go hand in hand. There's nothing better than robots, I think. <laughs> so my question is, is there something that you've always thought was funny that uh, a stock character or a person from history that either you're on the cutting edge on and you could say, or you're on the leading edge of, and you said, oh, now everyone realizes that whatever marsupials are funny or that we haven't caught up to you yet. Like, I don't understand why people don't think milk salesmen are funny. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah, I I I I don't know if I'm ahead of the. I feel like I'm behind the game on so much on so much of this. It's like I, I I'm pretty old fashioned in a lot of my comedy tastes. You know, I I think horses are really funny. Horses, are uh, you know, funny. I, I, but I'm not. You know, it's I've got a, I've got a, a horse story in this collection from the point of view of Paul Revere's horse, and he's uh, really bitter because Paul Revere got all the credit for the the midnight ride and. There, you know, it makes sense. He he yeah. feels like he deserves more credit for the ride because he's yeah. the horse and did all the riding. Yeah. Um. But uh, it's a sort of bitter tell-all memoir from a Oatsy the horse's point of view. Um. So you know, I'm doing I'm doing bitter horse humor, but it's like it's five years after BoJack, so I'm not exactly like reinventing the wheel here. I notice everyone in your book who consciously tries to be funny pretty much gets slammed for it, and I wonder why that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Um. I uh, 
I always have been attracted to characters that just know less than the reader, I think is what it is. You know, yeah. like growing up, there were a lot of, uh, bo- both in terms of what I would read and also in terms of what I would watch on TV, um, especially in the 1990s, there were a lot of sitcoms that featured extremely witty characters. And they were often putting each other down or making witty observations that were like stand-up comedy level uh, observations. Right. Um, and uh, I never related to those characters. I, I, I always related to the characters like Homer Simpson that knew less than they should. Um, as a child, those are the ones that I always found more sympathetic and more rootable. So I always try to write about characters that... Um, are, are not sharp. You know, I, I like to write about characters that are super vulnerable, um, whether they know it or not. Right. So that's interesting. And it leads me to an observation and a question. Here's the observation. I think also because you're consistent with the character who's maybe dumb and the reader has something on the character and the character is muddling through the world in a stupid way. You add all of it up you're telling me something about your worldview. And I don't know, maybe you admire a show like Frasier or, you know, Noel Coward or something that's, you know, specifically trying to be witty. But tell me if I'm wrong. It also seems to me not to be your worldview. You don't look at the world as essentially, you know, authored by characters or people who really have it all together. And that's, you know, the driver of uh, why things happen. Yeah, no, I think that's very accurate. And of course, yeah, of course, I have respect for, you know, Oscar Wilde and, and, uh, you're the, not going you know, sh- to, you're not here to shit all over Oscar Wilde. Good no, yeah. no, yeah. And, 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 uh, I love Frasier, you know, but it's, uh, and, and also by the way, like the characters on Frasier are extremely vulnerable and, right. um, you know, the, and, and you're still ahead of them, even if you're not intellectually more advanced than they are, you're still completely ahead of Niles as much as you're ahead of Homer Simpson, um, just in a, in a, in a non-intellectual way. Um, but yeah, I, um, Growing up, I was always suspicious of people who, uh, authority figures who said that they knew it all and that they had everything solved and figured out in their head. And I still am. And uh, I think that uh, our, our ignorance as a species is eternal. And uh, so is our arrogance and our confidence. And I think that's a really funny thing to play with. Yeah. And the last story I want to ask you about is the foosball championship of the whole entire universe in which an 11 year old (laughs) Nathaniel Rich takes on uh, his seven year old brother, Simon Rich. And I just wanted to tell you, I I gave this book to my son who is 11 years old and has a younger brother. His younger brother is nine. And my 11 year old Uh read it and he loved the he loved the Paul Revere story. He understood why. Of course, he understood why it was funny. And he read this and he totally accurately recounted the details of the story. And I said, what made it funny? And he paused and he said, I don't know. It just seemed mostly accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's a story um, told from the point of view of the foosball players themselves, largely. Yeah. Um, And they are, you know, they have the misfortune of, of being on Simon Rich's team. Uh, And, and seven-year-old Simon Rich is this horrible, sore loser, um, who loses to his older brother every single time and takes his anger out physically on the players. So not only are they losing, but they're like literally, you know, constantly being dismembered and paralyzed by their maniacal seven-year-old coach. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun to write and very, very autobiographical. 
Yeah, and I know you have your older brother, Nathaniel, is a great writer too, but... A great writer and a great foosball player. Well, he did have the four-year advantage on you, although... Yeah, I yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot, of, a lot of talk about that last game and uh, some chicanery was involved. But do you think, have you found that the younger brother, because this is my our situation uh, in my house, the younger brother uh, is uses comedy as a way to get you know, parental resources and the, and the older brother is less likely to be the comedian. Yeah, definitely. That is, I mean, that's, that's a generalization, but it's pretty true in my experience. I mean, the older sibling is usually better at sports. They're always going to be smarter, uh, or at least better educated, uh, if they've got a few years on you. Um, so what do you have left? You know, there's not, there's not much to kind of plan your flag on. Um, I definitely, notice in writers rooms there are exceptions uh but there's a a ton of younger siblings and uh and also a lot of only children weirdly i've noticed hmm. but um yeah whenever i'm in a writer's room and somebody is the oldest uh of like five i'm always really startled yep that's very unusual i think hits and misses is the new collection of stories from simon rich thanks a lot simon yeah, of course yeah anytime thanks for having me Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? And now the spiel. The unemployment numbers are in, and they are good, because they are low. Out today, strong economic numbers. October jobs report was just out this morning. 250,000 jobs added. Wages are up. Unemployment holding at 3.7%. That's good news. And that's that's CNN point. there, essentially echoing what everyone's saying. Woohoo, the economy is really cranking. You don't need me to tell you this. You heard it today from every outlet from Fox to the New York Times. I'll quote the Times. The numbers offered are another reminder of the labor market's persistent strength. Indeed. And if we're being fair, much of the media has noted the same thing for months. Here was Al Jazeera back in July. A growing economy and rising employment numbers, even in manufacturing, is cause for celebration and a hastily scheduled presidential appearance. I got to hand it to us. I got to hand it to businesses. I got to hand it to to him. Do I got to hand it to him? Well, he would like the credit. By historical measures, we are in fact living in good economic times. I am not above giving credit. You know who is? He is. Back during the election, he didn't even cite the unemployment numbers. He called them a hoax and a scam. Maybe because they weren't actually that bad back then. He instead talked about labor force participation. Here's how he framed it. Right now, 92 million Americans are on the sideline outside of the workforce, and they're not a part of our economy. It's a silent nation of jobless Americans. And look no further, and I mean no further. All you have to do is look at Flint, where I spent a lot of time, the city of Flint. Yeah, Flint, you know, as he's called 
Flint Donald. That's practically the guy's name. What, you thought Michael Moore was the New York blowhard from Flint? No, it was Donald Trump. On election day, here are some stats. On election day, the Flint unemployment rate was 8.7%. The last number, the most recent number that I can find for Flint has an unemployment, and it's from a couple months ago, has an unemployment rate of 7.9%. That is an improvement. Of course, when Barack Obama came into office, unemployment in Flint was 25%. And that is among the things that is so infuriating. If you look at the chart of national unemployment under Obama, it starts off in the nines, it hits 10% fairly quickly, and then he works to make it come down, down, down. Actually, he doesn't work. We all work. That's how unemployment numbers work. So I don't really care about giving credit to Obama saying this is all an Obama thing and all those 90 something months of job adding jobs that the vast majority is under Obama. Not my point. But doesn't it seem like these days we're making a huge deal of the last 1% that unemployment dropped by and we just poo pooed the 6% decline that came before it. Donald Trump is delighted by 3.5% GDP growth. By the way, that was exceeded four times during the Obama administration. These are all things that are true, but not exactly my focus. My focus is the perception of economic conditions that got Trump elected in 2016 versus the economic conditions that smart people tell us today should be bolstering him in the polls that aren't. It's not really a fact check. It's a feel check. And it is a fact, but also we feel that the unemployment rate today of 3.7% is really low. Mm Mm-hmm, that's true. But in November 2016, when America was going to the polls against that backdrop of Flint and silent forgotten men and machinists in Muncie looking skyward and mouthing why, back then, the unemployment rate was not the 3.7% it is today, but in November... It wound up the unemployment rate for that month was 4.6%. So you're telling me the difference between American economic carnage and the American carnival is 0.9%. Let's put it another way. Back when 95.4% of the people looking for work could find work, that was a disaster that we hadn't seen for ages. But now, that that horrid number of 95.4, now that that's up to 96.3% of people looking for work, being able to find work, it's a miracle. Now it's true, maybe Americans didn't know what the unemployment rate was in November and a month before it was 0.3% higher. So that's the difference that back then they thought 95.1% of people looking for jobs could get it. And now they know it's 96.3%. It just seems to me that back in November of 2016, there was a chasm between how good the economy was, which is to say pretty good, and how it was described. Mm-hmm. The first one is, let's remember why interest rates are low. Interest rates are low because the economy's weak right now. And with a weak economy, it's hard for small businesses to grow. So that's one thing that I would caution. That's MSNBC guest and NYU professor Robert Salmon. Remember that tape I just played of Trump talking about the 92 million silent Americans? Well, where he gets that number is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics Workforce Participation number. Today, Neil Irwin of the New York Times, and I quote him because the Times is fair and accurate, tweeted this. Unemployment rate is unchanged, but that's masking a nice two-tenths of a percent bump 
in labor force participation. Good news. It is good news. Labor force participation, what Trump was pointing to, is now 62.9%. And last month, it was 62.7%. Let's go back to those desiccated days of 2016 when Trump ran against the economy. It wasn't his economy of 62.7 and now 62.9% labor participation. It was, I'll read you month by month in 2016. Exciting radio. You ready? 62.8, 62 62.9, 63, 62.8, 62.6, 62.7, 62.8 for two months, then 62.9, then 62.8, then 62.7, then 62.7. In other words, it hasn't changed. It's the same. Labor force participation, Trump's preferred number is the same. The economy that Trump ran against was, if we were being fair, it was good and getting better, but we weren't being fair. Here's a 2016 MSNBC interview with investor Bill Flickstein. It took a year to peak out. So now the fume, the, 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 the monetization that drove the market to the moon has been out of play. The amount of GDP activity we got as a consequence of those things has washed through. The economy wasn't that great that last year. The economy is going to get weaker because these financial markets are going to feed back into the economy. Remember, it's the Fed that tried to make the market go up to help the quote-unquote portfolio balance channel. Well, it's going to unbalance on the way down. And look, every network airs guests that say things that fit in with their worldview and maybe not the facts. But MSNBC treated it like that was the fact. Every news outlet did. That was just the fact. The overwhelming narrative in 2016 during the election, the economy was hurting. I could have played 4,000 clips of guests on real news outlets saying the economy is not good. We all know it's not good. And everyone would nod their heads and say, oh yeah, it's not good. But that's not accurate. Or let's put it this way. If it's more accurate today than it was then, it's at most 0.9% more accurate. What has really changed? A bit of an unemployment downturn. Corporate profits are doing better. That is true. I think the main thing that has changed is this. We no longer have one major political party shit-talking every economic accomplishment of the other. But also, let's blame the Dems or let's credit the Dems. I don't think it's wrong for the Dems to have talked about different definitions of economic success other than GDP growth and unemployment. Right back then, they were talking about distribution and equality and who was benefiting from the growth. The Republicans have almost always defined economic success as growth. And I think the society agrees with them, at least in terms of perception. Look at the polls. Recent polls show that 63% of Americans today say the economy is good or excellent. Back in 2016, that was 32%. So you're telling me that a 0.9% decline in unemployment is what makes the American opinion on the economy go from a large majority saying poor to a large majority saying good. Clearly, we allowed a false economic narrative to take place. We told ourselves the economy was worse than it was. To say otherwise, well, then we'd have been deluded. Or maybe we were so privileged we couldn't see it. Or it just didn't seem safe to be fair to us. Things were bad for a long time, and when they got good, it took a while to recognize it. Or to say, wait a minute, things seem pretty good. Then we were out of step with our fellow American, that machinist from Muncie I talk about. And then all the talk of economic anxiety, which went unchecked and was nodded as if it was accurate, it became economic anxiety. And then one candidate was able to run on that or really run on racism, and we called it that, and it gave him pretty good cover to get elected. I think there are 
totally legitimate questions about equality and distribution. But what I think happened in 2016 is that the Democrats introduced those issues. The Republicans, not just Trump, Rand Paul and Jeb Bush, they capitalized on them. The media broadcast out this concern so many Americans left behind, and the public in general came to believe a story about the overall economy that was out of step with the way Americans have always thought about the overall economy, which is if unemployment's low and the GDP growth is pretty good, then the economy's good. I know economic opinions are inflected by partisanship, by perception, by media consumption, you know, where you get your news from. But facts are facts, and the economic facts diverge very little from 2016. But the economic facts diverge very little from 2016. The message about the economy is, however, vastly different. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader. Their productivity is soaring. It's up 0.9%. It's a bold new day in listening to things on earbuds. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcast. According to Kaiser, she experienced a 16% decline in her silver plan, which was her plan to wear silver earrings about 32% of the time. The Gist. We've been working on a story from the perspective of the third candle in the Old North Church amphibious landing who in the 1970s has ever heard of a goddamn amphibious landing my wick is never gonna get lit is it sully and thanks for listening